This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey friends, welcome to the program for Sunday, June the 5th, 2011. I don't know if you recall where you were back in 1976 when, um, well, we got some shocking news, uh, basically, uh, when uh, it was announced that eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes had died. Not so much uh, a a shock because he was an elderly man, but uh, we just really didn't know what was going on with that guy. In fact, whether he was still alive uh, to begin with. But uh, when the news came uh, that he was, in fact, uh, dead in in 1976, uh, and we saw the the images of of, uh, this uh, uh, frail-looking gentleman, that was rather shocking. However, What may be more shocking is what my two guests a little bit later in the program have to say about the secret life of Howard Hughes. I'll just give you a a little bit of a hint. They say he actually didn't die in 1976. He lived much, much longer, and we'll find out more details when Douglas Wellman and uh, Mark Music join me. They have a new book entitled... Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. The title is rather enigmatic, Boxes. Well, we'll find out what that means uh, as well. I don't know where you were in 1968 on this very night. June 5th, 1968, of course, the scene of another tragic event. Robert Francis Kennedy just delivering a... uh, I guess a, a victory speech at the Ambassador Hotel after winning the Californian primary. And, of course, with those immortal words, and now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. He was led through the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel, and we know the rest of the story. The question is, was the individual who fired the fatal shots, in fact, Sirhan Sirhan, the 24-year-old allegedly disgruntled Palestinian. 
a lot of interesting uh, ballistic evidence that has come our way over the years, some interesting sound recordings from inside the kitchen. Then, of course, you have the original autopsy by L.A. coroner Thomas Noguchi. And what does it all add up to? To me, it, 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 uh, it adds up to the fact that we probably have the wrong guy languishing in prison 43 years later. Did Sirhan Sirhan kill RFK? We'll delve into that over the next half hour or so. Joining me on the line is a researcher. She was, in fact, approved by Sirhan's family to conduct independent research into the RFK assassination. And I'm pleased to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Rose Lynn Mangan. Rose Lynn, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. Good talking with you. Uh, I'm Ro- sorry Rose- it's on this uh, anniversary. This is a terrible day. You know, 43 years. Indeed. How were you first approached by the, or, or did you approach the Sirhan family? Uh, how did that happen? Oh, you know, that's really a good question. Uh, no, I did not approach the Sirhan family. You know, I, I've done research all of my life and also collecting rare coins. And uh, I was into um, slavery, especially uh, slavery in America. And, um, and I collected, you know, rare clocks and numerous things like that. Well, one day I had uh, several clocks on my dining room table that I needed to, uh, they were in boxes, needed to uh, get off to the uh, clock man to have him go through. And um, uh, something was wrong with my gas stove, so I had the gas man uh, come in, and uh, we chatted. He fixed the stove, and we chatted, and he said, oh, you're into um, uh, rare clocks. I said, yeah, I've got to get them out to a clock man. He said, I know a good clock man. So uh, he gave me uh, the name of Mr. Polito, and this is uh, several years before the assassination. Well, it turns out Mr. Polito lived across the street and to the east of the Sirhan family, and he knew Sirhan very well. Well, I, uh, so I went to uh, Mr. Polito because he, he was retired and he fixed clocks in his garage, you know, part-time. Well, anyway, um, I did, uh, he was an Italian gentleman in his 70s, and uh, I had done a research paper for a class project on the Sacco and Vanzetti case because I was curious. I knew they were anarchists, but were they guilty of that crime, you know, of killing uh, the uh, pay guard and the security man? And so I wanted to make up my own mind. So I I was reading uh, quite a bit of material on it, and I thought, oh, there are enough questions that, uh, that you know, maybe, maybe these men, they were definitely anarchists, but maybe they were not the killers of these two people in that uh, shoe factory robbery. Well, anyway, um, so one day I was talking to him about, uh, because he lived in Boston at the time of, uh, of that event, that historic event. And so um, I mentioned to him the research paper I had done, and, uh, you know, that was years ago, and I was very fresh with all the details, and I went over it with him, and he listened, and uh, then he, he was very surprised that an American would take an interest in, um, in a case that controversial, because in Italy they, they certainly were, you know, were horrified at what happened to uh, Sacco and Vanzetti. But in America, 
you know, it, it was really old history. So he was surprised that, uh, that I took enough of an interest to, uh, to research it. Well, he never forgot that. Years later, when the Sirhan thing happened, um, several days after the assassination, I called him up because the address number is so close. The street is the same, Howard Street, and the address number was very, very close. So I called him up and I, I, I asked him, I said, Mr. Pleader, because there's such a big difference in age. Pleader was an elderly gentleman, and Sirhan just, you know, was 24. So I asked him, did you happen to know these people? He said, oh, yes. And so now that surprised me. And he said, I knew Sarhan very well. We talked a lot. So that was very interesting. So then he, because he was aware of my research, I had discussed with him, you know, my interest in uh, slavery and certainly in the Sacco and Vanzetti case. So he said, uh, you know, uh, the family is back home now because they were taken out of the house or the entire family was removed from the home for between seven and ten days. Nobody knows for certain because they were in a state of shock. So uh, so now they're home, back in the house again, and um, he said, I would like you to meet Mrs. Sirhan. So he said, would that be all right with you? And I said, well, yes, I, I, because I think he had in the back of his mind that uh, that I might, take an interest and keep an eye on what was going on. Because, you know, Mrs. Sirhan was so, she was in such shock and didn't understand what was happening, especially in a strange country. And and he knew I loved research. I couldn't, you know, I... So I, take me to nothing, that, Rose, if I can, if I can just... If yes. I can move it along a little bit, tell, take me to that first face-to-face so meeting. With... He arranged a tea with cake, and he had Mary Sirhan invited, and, and that's how he introduced me to her. She told Sirhan about the meeting, and Sirhan said, Mom, does this lady have a child? Now, this, this is absolutely incredible. And Mary said, yes, a son. My son was then 11 years old, and he was at the, uh, at the tea and so uh, Sirhan said, Mom, get to be friends with her. And I'll tell you the reason Sirhan said that. He had received a letter from Maris DeLong, M-A-R-I-S-D-E-L-O-N-G. And she was a reader. She, uh, she would read for people in Hollywood and for the National Enquirer. And, and so uh, she, uh, she had written him that a lady with a child... Um, will be very important in your life. She will enter your case, be very important. And so, uh, so, that's, so for years, Sirhan asked me to try to find, he thought it was Mary Long, because the, the, um, the jailers would allow him to read the mail, but then remove it. They wouldn't allow him to keep any of the letters. So he tried to memorize her name, and he thought it was Mary Long. So here I'm searching for Mary Long. Anyway, a newsman, I mentioned the story to him because I'm searching for Mary Long. He's, you mean Maris DeLong. Sure enough, I found her, and, and we talked. So that's another story. All right, but listen, that's Rose. how we'll, I got into the we'll, case. We'll, uh, that's, a, that's an amazing, amazing that story. We'll, yes. uh, we'll take a time out when we come back. Um, I'm going to get you just uh, in the interest of moving things along here to walk us through the um, the kitchen that fateful night 43 years ago today 
And uh, if we can account for all of the bullets in Sirhan's 22 caliber Ivor Johnson, find out where those bullets went, maybe compare that to the ballistics report, the, the Thomas Noguchi report, and try and make some sense out of all of this. Are you good for that? Well, my Is- focus of attention, my the thrust of my research has always been on the authenticity of the bullets. Not well, we'll do that when we, when we come back, Rose. Sure. Stay with us. Rose Lynn Mangan is with us, Sirhan Researcher, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own late despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. You know... John F. Kennedy uh, in death uh, remains such a hero to so many, but I I hope you'll forgive me for saying this. I I can't help but think that perhaps uh, with the death of Bobby, we lost, the Americans lost, the greatest president they may may have ever had. Uh, And I, I, I say that knowing that I'm I'm not of the age to have really remembered uh, Bobby Kennedy. My uh, my knowledge is uh, limited to film clips and and things that I've read, but uh, I just uh, I had I have a, this feeling that he would have been perhaps the greatest president. We'll never know, of course. Forty three years ago today, uh, gunned down in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, uh, Rose Lynn Mangan uh, is with us, Sirhan researcher, and. Uh, very quickly, uh, Rose, before we get into the uh, the ballistics and so forth, what what did um, Mrs. Sirhan say to you that that first meeting? Uh, what, what 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 did she think that you could do for her and her family and for her son? Well, she didn't. We we talked, and um, you could see she was terrified because. You know, her daughter, who had died three years earlier, that was her only surviving daughter. You know, I think she had seven children who died uh, while she was in the Palestinian camps. People don't know that. She had all these infants who died because of the cold, and you just couldn't care for even children a little older who had a little resistance built up. They they also were very sickly, but, uh, but she she looked 
I don't know what Mr. Plato told her before he introduced me to her, but uh, she looked um, uh, at, at me like a good American. She really loved this country, and, uh, and we became such good friends. We went everywhere together. And no matter where we went, she'd always say, what a great country, what a country is America, because we had everything. We had no bombs. Um, you know, you could go to sleep at night and not worry, and she couldn't get over that we had toilets. You know, there, there was no such thing, you know, in the and, camps. And several weeks earlier, when Bobby Kennedy was in Oregon on the hustings and declared his support for Israel, did she, did she say that that, that had any impact on, on Sirhan Sirhan at all? No, absolutely not. Hmm. No. So he was not an angry young man. Sirhan, probably he was. Yeah, I think he might have been. Um, I think he had a lot of baggage. Um, I think anybody coming out of, uh, of that traumatic childhood uh, had baggage. Um, I can't speak for him, but, uh, but I do know it weighed heavily on him, and he had a difficult time adjusting. And, um, and the loss of his sister affected him very, very much. She died the eve of his uh, birthday, and, um, and I asked him, why did you get uh, interested in, um, uh, in hypnotism and mysticism? I mean, a normal person doesn't do that. You know, you're in college, you, you take care of your affairs. You know, what got you interested in that? And uh, he said when his sister died, he began to think, what happens to, uh, to the soul? There has to be more, and he began looking into mysticism. That was his answer. I thought that was very strange. But I'll say this one thing real quick before, uh, you know, we go on to anything else. Always I asked Sarhan, isn't it possible, just have your mind open, isn't it possible that hypnotism was involved when you were in the pantry when that happened? And he absolutely would have none of it. He would take his hand and brush it away, like on the table, like he's brushing something off in frustration. You know, I don't want to talk about it. Always he rejected to me. That's why I was stunned that, that he cooperated with Dr. Brown, you know, in, uh, in these sessions to unlock, you know, the block in his memory. Well, yeah, we should back up and explain that. What happened was Sirhan Sirhan, from the get-go, said, I cannot remember anything about it. Now, he never said, I didn't do it. He never said, don't punish me. All he said was, I, I can't remember. And he tried to remember. So they brought in Dr. Brown. They hypnotized Sirhan Sirhan. And uh, that's when he started talking about a woman approaching him, and they had coffee, and that's all he could remember. The next thing he yes. remembered was them choking him. Yes, them he told me about the coffee. He went to, because uh, I asked him exactly what do you remember, and he remembered the Rafferty room and the other rooms, and he even remembers going to the ambassador. First he went to Kinkle headquarters, and um, he was also running for um, a position, and that was across the street. It was not in the ambassador hotel, so, uh, but it had bright lights, so uh, he parked the car and he went into the Kinkle headquarters, and uh, it was very dull. And uh, nothing was happening. And two men, two men approached Sirhan and told him. Now, this is what Sirhan told me. 
these two men approached him and said, everything is dead here. There's more action across the street. Let's go there. And Sirhan then went to the Ambassador Hotel. But now he had been there the Sunday, that prior Sunday. He had been there then. But, uh, but why he went that Tuesday night, um, he said he was looking for um, um, a parade, you know, the celebration of the, uh, the June 6th parade, you know, the Israeli uh, victory, the Six-Day War. Right, right. And uh, so, uh, so he couldn't find the parade. And uh, so he saw the Kinkle lights at the headquarters. That's what I say. And then he went, but it was two men who approached him, and he went. Now, uh, now that was interesting, and I, I'm not trying to make something of nothing, because I, I don't know. It could have been just a casual, and I don't know if it has any significance. But he did remember that, and he remembered the Rafferty uh, room and uh, the other rooms. He talked about it in the four Tom Collins. He remembered that. And uh, then he said he, he went to the car to go home because it was hot and he was starting to feel the effects of the drinks. And then he thought, no, I don't have insurance and I'm really woozy. I'd better walk back and get some coffee. He goes back to the ambassador and he rem- this is the last he remembers. A big, and he opened his arms up to show me, a big, shiny coffee urn. Shiny, he emphasized it was very shiny. A girl asked him, will you pour, because he was pouring himself a cup of coffee. She said, will you pour me a cup of coffee? Lots of cream, lots of sugar. The girl in the polka dot dress. Yes. Although, I asked him, did she have a polka dot dress on? He said, Lynn, I don't know what she wore. So, but he Rose, did. When, did you, when did you first have a face-to-face with Sir Han? Oh, God, I don't know. Very early on, I don't know. And how I, many I face-to-faces? I keep a diary. How many meetings with him? I don't know, many. many. Uh, at San Quentin, and then when he was moved to Corcoran. I didn't visit him when he was in Folsom because of a disagreement that I had uh, with Munir. And I left the case for 17 years. You know, I'm very independent. No one was paying me. I was doing this really to be helpful and because also I was interested. But um, I, was, uh, I met with uh, a former congressman from New York, Allard Lowenstein, and he was involved with uh, the upcoming uh, assassination uh, committee, the congressional investigation, and he wanted to uh, see Sirhan first because he wanted to include the RFK case. And uh, so I met with him first, and uh, he, uh, oh, yes, he was very anxious to meet with Sirhan, and that was the condition that, um, that he would uh, include the RFK case. And so I said, sure, and I told him how the arrangements, uh, how we could work it out. So um, when I was telling me, so I went to Mary's that evening, right after meeting with him, I went to Mary's and told her I liked him and it, it'll open up doors and let's have it a congressional investigation. Let's work with this man, Lowenstein. As you know, he was later murdered. Anyway, Mary listened because she respected my opinion, but Monir interfered. He said something in Arabic to her and you could see the way her eyes and her face changed, you could see she wasn't going to have anything to do with it. 
whatever he said yeah. in Arabic, that it was like dead. Forget it. We're going to go to a break here, uh, Rose uh, Lynn, in, in, in one second. But just let me ask you very quickly, just so we all understand. How was it that he had access to the kitchen, Sirhan? Oh, he was he wandering a- all through that area. Okay. All right, listen, we'll, um, we'll come back and we will get to the ballistics, I promise. Sure. Rose Lynn Mangan is uh, with us. SirhanResearcher.com is the website as we uh, mark the 43rd anniversary of the assassination of Robert Francis Kennedy. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and every one of our lives. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1 866 740 4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Violence breeds violence, repression breeds retaliation, and only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. For there is another kind of violence, slower, but just as deadly destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference in action you're listening to the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740 the untold secret life of howard hughes coming up a little later in the program douglas wellman and mark music uh, will be with me uh, to talk about their new book boxes the secret life of howard hughes what a fascinating read and this is going to blow your socks off uh if you were uh, like I was, under the impression that Howard Hughes died in 1976. Suddenly we got the news that his body uh, arrived at the uh, morgue in Houston, Texas. And uh, that simply is not the way my two guests say it played out. Uh, But there's so much more we'll discuss with them. Right now, of course, uh, we're uh, delighted uh, to have Rose Lynn Magan with us, Sirhan researcher, uh, we're discussing whether, in fact, Sirhan Sirhan was responsible for the death of uh, Robert Francis Kennedy, June 5th, 1968, at the Ambassador Hotel. Uh, so, Rose, the, um, the, uh, the shots that were fired in the kitchen, I mean, my understanding is that Sirhan Sirhan had an, uh, it's an Ivor Johnson 22 caliber eight-shot uh, pistol. Is that correct? Well, I... This is what the records tell us. I, I do not know for certainty. And the reason for that, th- this is really going to bowl you over. The grand jury met June the 7th, 1968, and they received the alleged Sirhan gun into their custody. 
They did not write the serial number down. It is not in the transcript. Can you imagine that? So Unbelievable. What gun, what gun did they receive in their hands? Was that an oversight? No. How could that be? That's the grand jury. You know, I once served on a federal grand jury for a little over a year, and they're very thorough. I will tell you, every, every um, item of evidence that comes in is thoroughly documented, recorded. They're very careful because, you know, it's part of a case that they're trying to build. Well, there was a lot of evidence that went missing, and the LAPD said, well, we didn't think we needed it anymore. They destroyed it. But how, Now, assuming that, let's assume that there were eight shots in, in Sir Han's Ivor Johnson pistol. Uh, my understanding was that they were all accounted for, and none of them were in Bobby. Is that right? Uh, well, I will tell you about the shots that uh, Robert Kent, well, you know, it's, it's public knowledge. There were two axilla shots, that is, under the right arm, and they were at an upward angle. And then there was a shot that went through the jacket, uh, through and through. It did not go through the lining. It did not hit the lining, only the suit fabric. And, and Noguchi mentions this in the, the autopsy report. And then there is the fatal shot to his uh, brain, the mastoid shot. So what happened, Noguchi, in performing the autopsy, he had to raise Kennedy's right arm up for him to be able to have the probe go through. And that showed that the angle, the first shot went through his uh, chest, went, went through the right front chest. It exited. Exited and, through uh, the And the so other shot is the one that lodged, it was stopped at the sixth cervical vertebra. That was People's 47. So you had two shots that entered his body, then you had the jacket shot, then you had the fatal shot to the brain. All so, from behind? Yes, they, this were all back to front and upward angle. Now, uh, there, there are so many problems. You know, in this short program, I couldn't begin to go through it all. So what I should try to tell you that is so important in this is that there's something called Special Exhibit 10. Have you heard about it? Um, did, this, did this have to do with the bullets that were fired into a water tank? Well, there were comparison, uh, the test shot comparison right. both. But no, I'm not talking. One of them allegedly was, was supposed to be one of the bullets from the uh, ended up in Special Exhibit 10, but wasn't. Let me tell you what Special Exhibit 10 is very briefly. It's, um, it's a little photograph, a comparison of two bullets side by side, one depicting allegedly the Kennedy neck bullet in comparison with a test bullet. Well, that was puzzling people. I don't know if you're aware of the story that Dr. Noguchi, who's very brave, he's a real hero in this case, he had a little photomicrograph of this special Exhibit 10 of this comparison of two bullets. And he gave it to Dr. Joling in the uh, Drake Hotel in, um, let's see now, I think that was uh, Wisconsin, uh, to hold on to safe, for safekeeping. 
and it was in February. And so, uh, so Jolting held on to it. Harper had a copy of it. People knew about it, but they didn't know what it meant. They didn't know what these two bullets were. <clears throat> so one day, Jolting, in talking to him about uh, some of the evidence, he mentioned that he had this uh, photomicrograph that Dr. Noguchi had given to him in the uh, Drake Hotel. I said, ah, please, because he was going to visit my home to look at some of the uh, evidence that uh, William Harper, this criminalist, had uh, given to me when he closed his lab down. So I said, bring me that special Exhibit 10 a photomicrograph that you have. It was a negative. Bring it to me. I want to examine it. So he brought it. Well, you know, tiny, about a one-inch square. I, it, I couldn't make head or tail of it. So I asked him, would you have a, um, have a photograph made of it and send it to me? He did. Now I had something to work with. And the more I studied it, the more crazy I got. I mean, it's what two bullets are they? And so as I began to research more, I found out that uh, Wolfer, this is Dwayne Wolfer, the LAPD criminalist, he said, he declared that the bullet to the left, as you view it, is the Kennedy neck bullet, people's 47, and the bullet to the right is one of his test bullets from people's 55, the envelope people's 55 in the Sirhan case. Well, the problem with that is people's 55 showed a different gun number, H18602, from a gun belonging to Jake Williams, not Sarhan, which should have been H53725. So now that's a puzzle. So then I, I still went round and round with it until I got a copy of the AFTI journal, and um, that Patrick Garland in 1975 was one of the examiners, and he had prepared an evidence inventory that attached to court order number two from the Judge Wanky hearing. So I thought, aha, let me study, because I knew the ID markings of each and every bullet. I even knew their shape, because I had been to the archives to examine the bullets with, with experts. So anyway, I, bingo, right straight out of the gate, I saw the bullet that they said is the Kennedy neck bullet that they gave to the examiners in 75 was not the right bullet, because it had DWTN on the base, whereas Dr. Noguchi, when he took that bullet out from the neck, he engraved TN31. So that's not the Kennedy bullet. So then I said, ah, that's interesting. The examiners, the seven examiners from the Wanky hearing in 75, they said Wolfer made a mistake, that it wasn't a test bullet from the envelope People's 55, what what that bullet was was really the Goldstein bullet, and so I explain thought, what oh, the Goldstein no. bullet is. Explain what the Goldstein bullet is. Oh, this is a victim who was shot in the left buttocks, and uh, that was uh, People's Fifty Two. That was the gold. He was one of the victims. There right. were five people who shot, so he was one of the people shot in the left buttock. Doctor Finkel, Max Finkel, removed that bullet, and he p engraved an X for Max. His name is Max. And I spoke to Dr. Finkel. Okay, so he engraves an X on the base of the Goldstein bullet. And keep in mind that the Goldstein bullet is what the seven examiners said is the bullet that's compared with the Kennedy neck bullet in Special Exhibit 10. And I'm saying it can't be because what 
is on the base of the bullets that give the examiners, supposedly the ghosty bullet, had number six on the base, which is the new panel ID number, a newly designated number. Because they were all, all the bullets, as they moved through the different channels, they were given new identity numbers. So all that very was confusing. I mean, so, it's all very confusing. What, what it does is. it mean, though? What does it mean? But, but if, if somebody, but, okay, so what it means is that it should have had an X. Okay, as you're looking at that photomicrograph, the bullet on the left is an unknown bullet. It's a false bullet because it has DWTN where it should have TN31 which Dr. Noguchi engraved. All right, the bullet on the right next to it in comparison, which the examiners said is the Goldstein bullet, and which um, um, Wolfer said was his test bullet, I'm saying both are wrong. It's an unknown bullet because it has the number six on the base, and it should have X on the base. And I have documents to prove it, and it's all in my reports. And Larry, in fact, included it. That was a major part of his uh, writ of habeas corpus that he filed. But more importantly, Rose, Noguchi's autopsy report says that Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, was shot essentially at close range from behind. That's correct. Sirhan Sirhan is in front and to the, I believe, to the left of Robert Kennedy as he enters the kitchen. That alone rules out Sirhan Sirhan, correct? Sirhan was not in the firing position, that is correct. My opinion is that, and, and you know, I, I, I can't say, I really can't say, because I would be shut down. I do feel there were people who had roles in this. I do feel that an assassin came in, while Sirhan was acting as a diversion, firing, and I believe he was firing blanks, and, uh, and the, there are some documents that I found in SUS that, um, where somebody who was at the firing range saw Sirhan firing blanks. In fact, Sirhan told me the story of firing blanks at the range. Okay, so Sirhan, I believe, I can only say, I believe was firing blanks in the front of Kennedy. When Kennedy saw Sirhan's gun, he raised up his arm in self-defense. That's how come those shots went at that funny angle. And, uh, and that enabled the assassin to quickly step in and fire those shots. And another thing, William Harper, the criminalist in this case, he told me that these were execution-style shots. They were meant for vital organs the heart, which was the axilla shot, and the brain, which was the mastoid. Isn't that interesting? Indeed. Did so you ever try and the, track down the, the so-called woman in the polka dot dress? Did we try? Well, you can't. How can you? What Harper's information was, and he had a lot of inside leaks, but you know what? It's hearsay, was that um, she flew back to Lebanon. I mm. have never been able to... Harper's information, usually, I would say nearly all of it, was right on the money, just like the Jake Williams. He told me the entire story of the Jake Williams gun, that's H18602, which was used for test bullets. What about, uh, you? sorry, uh, Rose, Eugene Thane Cesar. Um, yes. 
also working security, I believe, at the ambassador, was never was questioned as a witness, but not as a suspect. He, he too, he I believe, didn't testify at the trial. No, did he not also have an Ivor Johnson twenty-two caliber pistol? No, no, he had no. an H and R nine shot. It was a nine H&R. shot. H and R. I think it's Harrington and Richardson, twenty-two caliber. In fact, I held it in my hand. It uh, had beautiful gun. I'm, how could a gun be beautiful? But I mean that it had pearl, mother of pearl handles. Looked like mother of pearl. Really, a good-looking gun. Not, not. Um, you know, the alleged Sirhan gun or the others, they uh, they look, you know, just like regular guns, whereas this one is fancy. Like, you know, Patton had uh, white pearl-like handles, that sort of thing. Well, that's the gun that, uh, that Dame Eugene Caesar owned, and he said he bought it for his wife's protection. And the reason that I held it in my hand was because Ted Chirac, he did brilliant work. He located the receipt of the gun that um, Harrington Richardson, Y13332, that's the name, the uh, serial number, and he, he tracked down who Caesar sold the gun to, Yoder, in Arkansas. And uh, he went there, he got a receipt. Imagine that, that Ted got the receipt of that, that where uh, Caesar had sold the gun to Yoder, and then, mysteriously, some kids broke into Yoder's house, stole the gun, and Ted tracked down and found the, where they had thrown it in a pond. And Ted went there with a crew. They were making a film, a movie. And by God, if they didn't drain that pond and find that gun and clean it up. And then they did another interesting thing. They took it to a SEAL laboratory in California, and they performed a SEM test. And that's where it, it's, it's like, um, like a microscope, or not a microscope, like um, uh, an X-ray. And it zooms down to see if it has been renumbered or if it's the original tooling, you know, the, uh, the identification number. And, and it's the true number that was the correct uh, original number. I'd like to see that done on the gun at the archives the alleged Sarian gun, to see Indeed. if that gun is, uh, has been retooled. Because I was talking to experts about that, and, uh, and they do, as you know, file off numbers, and they put new numbers on them. They do that. They, you know, there's guess, so many clever things. But my question is, would be, though, is it possible that the, the, the bullets that entered Bobby Kennedy from the rear could have come from that type of gun that, that no, Eugene Thane says no. are at? As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Ted and I were talking about that. He had Lowell Bradford uh, test fire the, um, the Caesar gun. And I gave Ted photographs, very good photographs, of, the, uh, of People's 21. These are one of the shell casings from the, uh, from the crime scene of the alleged Sirhan gun. And compare the test firing... Now, of course, this is, you know, it would have to really be done with the original uh, shell casings, but, but they, make, they have distinctive markings. So I said, look, there's a start. Let's just look at that and see if they're even close. Not even close. So the, uh, the pin markings, the firing pin markings of the uh, Caesar gun was nowhere near a match for the pin markings 
in those photographs of People's 21, the one of the eight shell casings from the alleged Sirhan gun at the crime scene. So we can rule out Eugene Thing Cesar. Yes, that is not the gun. I, right. I like I say, I have I have my own opinion of what I think went on, but. Like I say, after I'm gone, after I'm gone, a friend of mine promised he'll put it out there, not while I'm alive. I, I totally understand. Listen, final word. So uh, are you convinced that, that Sirhan Sirhan was psychologically manipulated? Yes, yes, absolutely. I believe that, uh, that his, he has a true memory block. There's no question about it. I, I really believe that. I mean, again and again. In fact, I'll say this really quickly. Uh, early on, uh, Sirhan had met Dr. Simpson in the prison, Edward Simpson, and they got to be very fast friends. Sirhan really trusted him because both men lost their countries. In those days, Estonia was gobbled up by Russia, so he, so he had no country. Sirhan had no country. Palestine was gobbled up. So these two men were really, really close, and he was the psychologist who was examining Sirhan. It was also good for Sirhan to be able to talk with somebody. Well, Sirhan asked Dr. Simpson one day, and, and both told me this story. Uh, Simpson corroborated what, what Sirhan told me and also wrote to me about it, that he wondered if Dr. Simpson would please hypnotize him to remove the block so he could remember what happened in the pantry. And then Sirhan looked at the wall switch. There was an electric outlet. And he said, do you think we're being bugged? And it was right then and there after that visit that, uh, and that's all in my, um, you know, in my report, um, that Simpson was told in writing finished. No more meetings with Sirhan. That you're making a career of it, no more. And they stopped it from visiting with Sirhan again. Sirhan, after, because they, they blocked Simpson, and he was the only, and Sirhan trusted Simpson, but he wouldn't, wouldn't trust other doctors. He trusted Simpson. He wanted the block removed. So Sirhan wrote to me asking me to contact Simpson and uh, let's uh, try to explore this further. And I did. I met with Simpson a number of times. He uh, wrote an affidavit, which we used uh, in court. And, uh, and Simpson absolutely corroborated the story that Sirhan did ask him to hypnotize him to remove the block so he could remember what happened in the pantry. And then uh, Simpson was kicked out. His name is Dr. Edward Simpson. Uh, Rose Lynn Mangan, thanks so much for your time. We should point out the website if people want to read your reports is www.sirhandsresearcher.com. Yes, and thank you for that. And thank you very much for remembering Bobby Kennedy. That, that is surely good of you. I, I was surprised that the uh, media didn't, um, didn't cover it more. Well, Rosa Lynn, it's been a great uh, honor and uh, pleasure speaking with you, and I hope we'll talk again soon. Same here. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When we come back, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. Stay with us. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Not sure, but if you're anything like me, much of what you know about Howard Hughes, you probably learned from the movie The Aviator. Tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, which just transformed. Who would have thought this fresh-faced kid could, could have pulled that role off? But he did. And, uh, a great direction, of course, by Martin Scorsese. But in the movie, of course, Howard Hughes is, is this ingenious, enigmatic, enigmatic suffering through uh, episodes that have left him unkempt and unable to function. But was he really a, a genius or a madman or was he both? And, of course, the question top of mind, did he fake his own death? I go back to that day in 1976 when uh, it was announced that... Uh, his body had arrived in the uh, the morgue in Houston, Texas. And a lot of us probably thinking much the same thing, that we didn't know much about his later life. Most of it was unexplained. Well, that is until now. Enter Eva McClelland. And a story that she related to Major General Mark Music. It starts to make sense of this unexplainable existence. How Howard Hughes took on another identity, changed his appearance, and lived as another man. And the aforementioned Eva McClelland McClelland kept this secret until Howard Hughes finally died in 2001. That's right, 2001. Well, who is Eva McClelland? Who was this other identity that... uh, took the place of Howard Hughes. We're about to find out. Joining me on the line are Douglas Wel- Wellman, who has been a television producer, director in Hollywood since 1980. He's the assistant dean of the School of Cinematic Arts at the University of S- Southern California. And Mark Music is a retired major general from the Air National Guard, the chief operating officer for Prairie Ventures. And their book, Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes is about to reveal all. A gentleman, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to be here. Richard, that, we're looking uh, forward to this. Okay, Doug and uh, Mark, thank you. Uh, first of all, we should explain uh, who is Eva McClelland. Well, Eva McClelland was a civil service worker in the United States uh, who was had moved to uh, Panama. To work at Howard Air Force Base there, 
and she met a strange man that she later learned was Howard Hughes and kept a secret for 31 years until she told it to Mark Music. We'll get into the details, obviously, of what she told you, but why is she to be believed? Well, uh, this is Doug, by the way. And uh, I met Eva. I did not know her nearly as well as Mark did, but I can tell you that even when I met her in her early 90s, she was, first of all, a very sharp, intelligent woman who presented a, uh, a lot of material, a lot of facts, which Mark worked at checking for a number of years and uh, came up with the, uh, the rather surprising uh, belief, uh, belief, actually fact, that it all worked out and that, in fact, uh, all, everything she said checked out. And, and, Mark, why did she entrust you with this information? Oh, boy. Uh, let, me, let me start uh, back a little bit when I first met her. I first met her in 2002, and, and I talked to her several times prior to that. But I worked for a nonprofit organization, and she was wanted, contacted us, wanted to leave some property to the nonprofit organization. And so I went down there and, into Alabama and just to meet her. And she started telling me this story. And um, it was crazy. It was wild. It was, it was just unbelievable, uh, this what she was telling me, that, that she was married to Howard Hughes and that Howard Hughes did not die in 1976. And as I listened to her story, over it took me four years to actually come to the conclusion was I think she's telling exactly the truth. Uh, her story never changed. No details ever changed in it. And as I went back and tried to confirm what she was telling me, lo and behold, I found out that I could go back and confirm it. And she was a very credible woman, a very honest woman, and very... Uh, just a very believable woman with a with a wild wild story the name of the book boxes the secret life of howard hughes what does the boxes refer to well the howard hughes who at the time uh, that he met uh, eva was using the identification of a deceased cia agent um and there's a whole story in that as well but uh, he called himself Nick. He was using the idea of a, of a CIA agent who had died a couple of years previously and who was basically four inches shorter than him, bared completely no physical resemblance at all, but he used the ID. Uh, uh, in all of their time together, he was attended to by a group of aides who always sort of stayed in the shadows and communicated his instructions to them. And he was always afraid of being found out. So for all the time they lived together, he kept all of his uh, belongings, everything that was important to him, uh, first in a series of boxes and later when they were in uh, Alabama in some barrels, so that it would be possible for them to just pick up everything and move basically at a moment's notice. And they lived like that for 31 years. He, he, he just never let her unpack. They moved they move from time and time and time again. And they, she just, she lived out of boxes for years and years and years, and he never let her unpack. And uh, did he feign the the, um, the mental illness in the, in the those episodes? I mean, was that part of this scheme, or was that was that the other the other person who took his place? 
Well, the first of all, Hughes was known to have uh, certain unusual characteristics. I think we can probably call them mental illness and not uh, and not be criticized for it. Nick had most of those, perhaps all of the same characteristics, and he was a very, very strange man to uh, to get along with. Everything from uh, he would always wear gloves and shoes. Uh, even in in the in the house, he'd wear the gloves, but uh, but outside he'd run around naked, which we I discovered lately later uh, talking to someone who'd worked for Hughes years ago was exactly what Howard Hughes had done uh, when this person I spoke to uh, worked with him in the '60s. So Hughes, uh, I think, was mentally ill. Nick had certainly, I think, we could say he was essentially mentally ill in many ways, and the person who was living at the uh, Desert Inn Hotel with the long fingernails and the long hair that sort of became the the icon of Howard Hughes in his later years. That person was, uh, in all likelihood, uh, mentally ill and uh, most certainly uh, drugged to be um, compliant. Okay, so I- I'm confused about this uh, uh, Nick person, former CIA uh, agent. What happened to him when Hughes took his identity? Well, he had already disappeared. He was uh, uh, entered the Air Force, the Army Air Force, uh, during World War II. Uh, he was married. He had a family. Uh, he left the Air Force, and according to his brother, and uh, he was in the station actually in Panama. According to his brother and his son, he then went to work doing operations for the CIA. Uh, one of the things that uh, he worked on apparently was the Bay of Pigs invasion, and uh, the person who, one of the other people on the Bay of Pigs invasion was Robert Mayhew, who uh, later on in his career actually ran everything for Howard Hughes. So there's a connection there. Uh, I think it was last, uh, 1966 was the last time he was seen. Is that correct, Mark? Do you remember? His son left him in uh, 1967. And so his son last saw him in 1967, and, then, and he was 5'11 at that point in time. And then now 1969, in, in uh, late October, early November 1969, we have a man who's six foot four, using the identification of Werner nicely. However, he says his name is Nick Nicoly. And according and, to his son, he'd uh, disappeared uh, somewhere in South America working for the CIA. His, his son confirmed to me, I talked to his son several times, his son confirmed to me that his dad was working uh, some counter-drug missions for Colombia. Uh, in response to CIA needs. And so how did Howard Hughes settle on the identity of this individual that he was going to assume? I mean, did he have uh, some some help with this? Was, was there someone on oh, the inside sure. assisting him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Howard Hughes was uh, uh, very much involved with the CIA and had been for years. One of the things that we speculate in the book, and this is something we can't prove, but during this period of time, Howard Hughes was building a ship for the CIA. The ship was uh, called the Glomar Explorer. Hughes was building it for $200 million. It was supposedly a deep-sea mining ship, but in fact it was being built for the CIA to raise a sunken Soviet submarine. So what we speculate here is that since Hughes was under so much pressure, both from his uh, his phobias and uh, he had all kinds of legal problems and all people trying to get at him, he basically was a prisoner in the Desert Inn Hotel in Las Vegas. 
So we speculate that as part of the Glomar Explorer deal with the CIA, he asked for uh, identification to set up a new life somewhere where he and his uh, cadre of aides could go off. He hadn't been personally directing his business in the sense of any face-to-face interaction with any of his business colleagues for many, many years. He did everything by phone call and memo through his uh, Mormon aides. So essentially, in terms of operating his business, he could do that from anywhere. So that's, uh, that's the tie, and we believe the CIA we were the people who provided the, uh, the deceased agent's uh, information. And, 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 Richard, the, uh, and the indiv- another thing on the CIA is Howard Hughes operated the CIA's communication satellites. And so he could have a satellite system or, or an antenna where he was located with Eva, and they could have another one where the uh, stand-in was and use the CIA's communication satellites to, to talk back and forth. And, of course, that couldn't be tra- couldn't be traced. Eva actually mentioned the one time that Nick took her, to, when they were living in Panama, took her to some place because she wanted to talk to her brother in Alabama. And he took her to a, a... He only took her there once, and it was kind of a secret place. And she got on the telephone with her brother, and she couldn't understand why it was such a clear signal because normally, you know, she was used to landlines going, uh, you know, from uh, Panama up to uh, uh, yeah, Alabama. And... Uh, and Nick told her then, well, that's it's something new. It's a satellite. And, he, I mean, he's doing all of this in that, that period when, from 66 to 76, that those 10 lost years when he supposedly holed up in various hotels, the Desert Inn. There's even a Canadian connection that's alleged that he lived for a time at the Bayshore Inn in Vancouver. Yeah, so absolutely. he's actually, he's very active and and, uh, and and working for the CIA during this period? I, I, well, we don't really know that he was with working with the CIA beyond Project, Genera- uh, Project Jennifer, which was the, um, the Glomar Explorer. He quite possibly could have been, because there's a whole other connection where the CIA files uh, that were kept, uh, the Howard Hughes CIA files, uh, that dealt with the CIA were in the Hughes warehouse in, uh, on Romaine Street here in Hollywood, and they mysteriously disappeared. I mean, the, <laughs> there's a lot of weirdness with this story, believe me, but uh, it's possible, but he doesn't, it, he doesn't turn up telling anything to Eva about that. And, and the, the, uh, the other angle here, if you look at 1972-73 time frame, there, there's this uh, movement back and forth, two descriptions of two separate men, uh, the long-haired, long-fingernail gentleman, and then interspersed with that is a is a commanding, charming, healthy, uh, personable Howard Hughes meeting with uh, the president of Nicaragua, the governor of Nevada, that type of thing. And none of the books ever, ever explain how can you go from a long-haired, long-fingernail, 90-pound, drug-addicted man to a, a, a charming, commanding, in-charge man in meetings. And it could never be explained, and now... With Eva's story, it all becomes clear. Richard, let me just give you an example of that. In February of '72, the 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 person, the stand-in person, uh, was carried aboard a chartered yacht and taken to Nicaragua. This was in February 15, 1972. The yacht skipper said he was a long-haired, long-fingernailed, dirty, incoherent, uh, about 92-pound guy. Three weeks later. Howard Hughes met with the uh, with General Somoza 
in Nicaragua, and the United States ambassador, Turner Sheldon, and they describe him as being perfectly normal, healthy, intelligent. Uh, he then met with some Merrill Lynch brokers in September of that year. In December of that year, he arrives in Fort Lauderdale on a private jet. Once again, he's emaciated, long hair, long fingernails, incoherent. The Internal Revenue Service uh, essentially had a warrant for him because he'd not been paying his taxes. That's one of the reasons that you know we believe he wanted to escape. The Internal Revenue Service and the um, uh, customs people boarded the jet and took one look at him, and they let him go because he was completely incapable of, of you know, he was just this, this essentially a breathing cadaver. And then you go back uh, three months after that, he meets with the governor of Nevada, and he's perfectly normal. He's back to being Howard Hughes. Uh, three months after that, he is in, or two months after that, rather, in London, he's flying a jet airplane with the ch- uh, chief test pilot of Hawker Sidley Aviation. And a month after that, the doctors are called to Howard Hughes, who's now back to being 92 pounds. He's broken his hip, and the doctor says he looks like a prisoner of war. Who was this night? Sorry, who was this 92-pound denizen of the uh, the upper floor of the desert in from... 1966 to 1976. Who was this person? Some indigent pulled off the street? That's what we speculate. There's there's no... We haven't been able to find out who he is. Uh, except that he actually... Um, there's a big age gap in these people as well. Uh, Werner nicely was... Look up the records here. Werner was born in 19... Howard was born in 1905. Werner slash... Uh, uh, Nick uh, Werner was born rather in in 1921, and the the long-haired guy, the derelict, appeared to be 20 years older than Hughes. So we don't know who he is. But but when, when he happened. fell, when when the uh, long-haired, long friendly guy fell, broke his hip in 72, 73, August of 73, the doctors look at him and they said. This guy has to be at least 20 years older than what his normal age would have been at that point in time. Was there, uh, when um, he shows up at the morgue in Houston, Texas on April 5th, 76, was there an autopsy? No. That's uh, very interesting because when the body arrived, the family said they wanted no pictures and no fingerprints. Was there? There wasn't an autopsy. Was there a, a mark? I, I don't I remember think, there one. I think there was a little bit of an autopsy there. Yeah. Actually, yeah, you're right. There was. Yeah. But the family wouldn't allow pictures or fingerprints, uh, and they got him in the ground. I think it was within 48 hours. And the only person, outside of a few family members that he'd never met, the only person who showed up at the gravesite was a representative of the CIA. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Doug Wellman and Mark Music, my guests, here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue to delve into the untold secret life of Howard Hughes. You can get on board, questions and comments, 416-360-0740. And out of town, toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, one 866 740 
Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Will you give me the question in advance that you want to ask me while I am here? Or will you give them to any third neutral party? Is it not true that you are going to propound the questions for me as I testify and based upon what I testify as I go along? Are you willing to set aside the questions in advance which you will ask me? Mr. Hughes. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Doug Wellman has been a television producer, director in Hollywood since 1980, and the assistant dean of the School of Cinematic Arts at the University of Southern California. Mark Music is also with us, a retired major general from the Air National Guard and the chief operating officer for Prairie Ventures. Their book is Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. A very uh, a powerful uh, individual at one point, the richest man probably in the world. Why did he have to do go through this charade of, uh, you know, of finding uh, someone to take his place, picking some homeless person off the street in Las Vegas, inst- installing him in the Desert Inn, taking on a new identity. Why, I mean, if he could just disappear, why didn't he? Well, he had to, uh, he had a lot of holdings, and at the time uh, they were privately held by him, so... Uh, he couldn't just disappear and let all of his massive holdings fall into disarray. As long as people believed that he was still in control of things, uh, then his business interests would remain uh, operating. Now, as I said earlier, he did all of his communications by telephone or by written notes through his aides. The other side of that is he did have uh, serious social phobias, and he did have a lot of unusual... Um, habits like not paying his taxes to the point where he would move periodically to avoid paying state taxes. I mean, he was a he was an unusual guy. So one of the reasons, in fact, that um, he met with uh, the Nevada uh, governor in uh, 1973 was because all the stories about the long-haired crazy guy led the Nevada Gaming Condition uh, Commission to want to know just who was running all of those financial holdings, who really held that license. Was it in the hands of a crazy guy? And so that's when the governor and the head of the gaming commission flew to London, where where uh, Howard uh, was at the time, and met with him in person just to establish that he was, in fact, not crazy. That's so they one met, of the, one of the more the... bizarre things about this, because you have the sightings of the crazy pe- person and the sightings of the commanding Howard Hughes. 
And the Nevada people, after meeting with them, said, well, this guy's fine, no problem, and they went back to Nevada. So was this month? In the next month, the doctor said, no, Howard Hughes actually looks like a prisoner of war, and he's completely uh, lacking in uh, any uh, mental uh, uh, facility to operate anything. So was this... How could that be? It's impossible. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like, uh, you know, for for many people, this was not even a dirty little secret. It was like some kind of a ridiculous joke. I mean, the the governor of... The governor of Nevada knows that uh, the Howard Hughes that he met is not the same, and uh, General Samosa in Nicaragua. I mean, was it out there? Did a lot of people, in fact, know that this 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 scheme was was going on? Well, you know, actually, when Mark Mark was doing the research on this, I mean, I, I had only heard about the crazy guy. I I had never, you know, in the later years, I had never heard anything about the commanding, intelligent, well-groomed Howard Hughes popping up. And that was something, when Mark turned that up in his research and sent it to me, I mean, I, I think that was the time, the moment, when I was absolutely 100% positive that Eva was telling the truth. Because that's the only way the story makes sense. And, and there, were, there were some people that we believe knew this. Uh, we, we think the age knew it, probably five age knew it who were there helping him because they were doing his business. We think there were two doctors. There's a Dr. Crane and a Dr. Thane, and they both knew it. And there's a gentleman named Jack Reel who was an executive for Lockheed, and he knew it. So so there's a, there's a group of people that knew it. They just all kept their mouth shut. In the case of uh, Jack Reel, the, the Hughes stand-in was removed from the... Uh, Desert Inn Hotel. He was brought down wearing a bathrobe on a stretcher and uh, taken to the airport and loaded uh, onto a jet aircraft uh, that Jack Reel, who worked for Lockheed at the time, had loaned uh, loaned uh, Hughes for this purpose. The next day, the incoherent man who was loaded out on the stretcher, you know, supposedly Howard Hughes, the next day Howard Hughes calls Jack Reel and they have a lengthy conversation thanking him for the use of the aircraft and telling him that he wants to buy some more aircraft. Let's uh, check in with the Hoosier State and say hello to Doug, checking in from Indiana tonight. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Doug. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about Howard Hughes. I happen to do quite a bit of studying about him, and uh, if you guys, you, I'm sure you know that uh, he had he was delving into uh, Hollywood productions and everything, and in 1930 he uh, put a lot of his own money, or most of his own money, into a pr- production called Hell's Angels about World War One fighter pilots and everything, and he had to buy almost a whole squadron of these aircraft. And he wanted his uh, movie done so perfectly that uh, the stunts was so dangerous that uh, actual World War One fighter pilots refused to fly the stunts. So Howard Hughes did a lot of the most dangerous stunts himself. And one time, his plane lost control and he flew almost directly straight into the ground and lived through that experience. And according to history and everything, uh, he was into uh, high-performance aircraft being developed uh, for the World War II military machine, and uh, he had at least one crash through with an experimental aircraft then that gave him some serious damage. So I could see where he might have uh, some difficulty mentally with you know the experience he's had with his aircraft. 
Well, you know, actually, I'm, gra- I'm glad you brought up that crash, the experimental aircraft, because that's the crash that left him uh, drug-addicted, number one. But more interestingly to our story, he was severely burned in that crash. And Nick had the burn scars in the same places where Howard Hughes had them. So that is another another thing that bears out that Nick and Howard Hughes were actually the same men. Uh, All right, Doug in Indiana, thank you for that call. That much much of, much of that was, uh, thank you. Uh, much of that was, of course, uh, featured in the, that wonderful film, The Aviator. Um, yes. The, why, when the uh, the homeless person that had replaced Hughes, when he, why, when he died, didn't they find another replacement? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess at that point, Howard, uh, Nick, Nick, you know, one of the interesting things is we, we vision Howard Hughes as being the, uh, you know, the one of the wealthiest men on the world in the world and having airplanes and having all these things. But in fact, he was very much a, a country boy, having grown up in Texas, which is one of the things that Nick always spoke to Eva about, how he'd grown up uh, in Texas and um, and that his family was in the oil business. And, and even when he was in the movie business later, uh, he uh, at one point ran off with the silent movie star Billy Dove, and they set up uh, housekeeping in a cabin in uh, um, Arizona with a dirt floor. So I think by the stage of his life when the stand-in died, I I think he really was sort of over everything. Hughes Tool was now a public corporation. He didn't own it personally anymore. So it it may just be that he wasn't really that interested in in dealing with it anymore. I don't know, but it's an interesting question. And and also, Richard, I I think by then, 1976, I think he was just ready to disappear. Um, I, I, I think he was ready to have that kind of his life over and go on to this other life that was much simpler than what he'd been doing um, uh, previous. Uh, Prior he, to Hughes Tool going public, he couldn't disappear. I see. And That's also, he no longer had the gambling licenses. Uh, I don't think he still had the gambling licenses when when the stand-in died. Eva McClelland... Uh, She's she was a, a beautiful a beautiful woman. Uh, she looked uh, as you you make the comparison in the book to to uh, Liz Taylor. Is, is that what Howard saw in her, or was there another connection, a deeper connection? Well, I think initially it was her looks. Uh, Howard Hughes was a well-known womanizer, and he also had a well-known fascination with uh, Elizabeth Taylor, who who basically sort of rebuffed him. She she wasn't interested, so. Uh, he, I think initially it was the looks that, that caught his attention. One of the other interesting things about this is um, Nick was uh, supposedly an air maintenance su- supervisor. However, he didn't have any office and he never went to work. Uh, he was supposedly making $9,000 a year, but he gave Eva a $5,000 engagement diamond and everyone of Eva's friends made the comparison. This is a, when Richard Burton had given Elizabeth Taylor that huge diamond that he gave her. Everybody uh, made the, the comparison that now she not only looked like Liz Taylor, but she had the diamond to prove it. So did they truly live a sort of a quiet, normal uh, life together? Well, it was quiet. I don't know if you'd call it normal. 
he was a difficult man to get along with. I mean, uh, Eva told Nick, or um, sorry, yeah, she told uh, Mark many, many stories uh, that are in the book about uh, what I th- think was essentially emotional abuse. Why did she stay with him? Well, she didn't. Know. He's, uh, That's actually he's another one of the interesting things in the book is that she left him periodically, and as we trace the actions of the well-groomed. Howard Hughes that shows up in London and shows up dealing with uh, stockbrokers and governors and people like that. The times when he show, uh, the Howard the well-groomed Howard Hughes shows up are the same times as when Eva has left him. Eva has left Nick because she couldn't stand him anymore. He, he his uh, Eva said many times his he he can go from a a very charming, very friendly, very a uh, personable man to a verbally vicious man just in a matter of seconds. And she didn't know when he'd cross that line, but, but he, he could cross that line very, very easily. And those are the times when she, when she would say, I just can't put up with you anymore, I'm leaving. But she always came back. Uh, she loved him, and he loved her. They always got back together again after, after separations. And as Doug said, it was during those separations that something else would go on in Howard Hughes' life. Like the flying of the airplanes or meeting with people and things like that. One of the times when uh, Nick really lost control of himself, uh, he grabbed Eva uh, tightly enough for her to actually scream. And it was the sound of these uh, aides in the the black suits and the white shirts coming running to see what what had happened that actually snapped him out of it. That he would go into um, these sort of fits of rage that were, uh, in a sense, almost uncontrollable. And and then no matter where they lived, up to nineteen seventy six, up to nineteen seventy six, the aides were always close. They were always uh, close doing business. Um, later on, nineteen seventy four, seventy five, seventy six, Eve would actually see the aides uh, doing business with them, and and she point them out to Nick, and Nick would just smile. There are some pictures some in the book of uh, uh, an older uh, a gentleman that in a. Uh, Kind of a stainless steel or a steel construction helmet, it looks like, uh, with um, this is in, I guess, at their ranch in Alabama. And it is reportedly Howard Hughes or Nick. Uh, have these photographs been been analyzed to, to, to compare with other photos of Howard Hughes? Yes, um, Mark did that. Yeah, we've done, we've done a comparison. I've, I've tried to get, I've gotten. Two two people, professional uh, photography comparison people, to to uh, look at him, and both of them quit talking to me. They just I say send a picture, and they just quit talking to me. They wouldn't answer my questions or anything. So what I ended up doing is if you if you look at the facial characteristics between Nick and between Howard, what you find is that there's a there's a left line uh, on the left side, left cheek of his face. There's lines around his mouth, and they compare directly to him. Uh, also, the eyes uh, compare directly, and the shape of the head. Uh, if, if you overlay the shapes of the head, uh, Nick had a very rounded head, and Howard had a very rounded head. And if you blow those up to the same shape and lay them right over, you have an exact match on there. Now, the, the difference we find is the noses. The noses are different. Uh, whether Howard had a nose job whether he had uh, damage to his nose in some way, 
for their plastic surgery. Uh, we don't know on that, but the, but the noses do seem to be different. However, well, we all the other characteristics are exactly the same. We also know that Nick had his nose broken, so you know perhaps that's where the difference is. You know, we have an overlay that's done. Uh, one of the, if you have the the book there in front of you, Richard, you'll see the very deep crease lines along the side of his his mouth. And one of the interesting things we have a, an overlay that uh, Mark had made. When you put the overlay on there, everything matches exactly, except the slight variation in the nose. Is there uh, any further uh, evidence? I mean, did did Eva have any? Um, I don't know, knowledge from Howard that only Howard Hughes would have known about? Did she have any uh, anything that may have contained any DNA? We are actually working on a DNA angle. Actually, one of the most compelling pieces of information is something that unfortunately we didn't find until after the book was published. Um, there is an exhibit up at the uh, Strategic Air and Space Museum of the book and when when Mark uh, was looking for the pieces for that exhibit, he found something pretty unusual. Mark, you want to? Uh, one of the things that, that I found, and and when Eva, when we moved Eva from an independent living into a nursing home, uh, she gave me everything, and so I got all documents. I've got all um, you know everything that she had. I got, and I tried to determine, okay, which do I want to keep and which don't I want to keep. And when we were preparing the display for the Strategic Air and Space Museum in Nebraska, I found a lapel pin. There's a little lapel pin in there, and it's a very uh, nice professional pin, and it says U.S. Congressional Advisory Board. Uh, now, now, Eva would have never been on a U.S. Congressional Advisory Board. Uh, Werner Nicey would have never been on a U.S. Congressional Advisory Board. However, Howard Hughes could very well have been on the U.S. Congressional Advisory Board. And as we, as we have researched this pen to try to find the history of that pen, we found that, that it, be, it becomes uh, a link into a senator from Nevada um, named Paul Laxalt, who in the early 80s uh, was heavily involved with this U.S. Congressional Advisory Board. Uh, we we believe Paul Laxalt probably knew Howard Hughes was not dead uh, in the early 80s, and somehow got him this pin as a as a thank you for what you've done for our our security, national security. And Laxalt and, and Hughes had previously uh, been associates. When when the homeless replacement um, d- died. In 1976, April 5th, 1976, was there a life insurance policy? That I don't know. I I, I never heard of a life insurance policy on him. On Howard Hughes? Of course, was quite an estate. There's a huge, sizable estate. But I don't know of any life insurance policy. You you probably remember the Mormon will, uh, Richard, do you not? Yes, yes. That was the one where... um, a gas station attendant by the name of Melvin Dumar uh, right. said that he'd picked up an old man in the desert who had, was bleeding and was dehydrated, and he took him to a Las Vegas hotel. And then after the 1976 uh, uh, presumed death of Hughes, he found this will naming one-sixteenth of the Hughes estate to him, Melvin Dumar. 
Well, we believe that that may very well be the real will. And the reason for that is that Hughes had set up a medical uh, um, hospital in, uh, in Florida, and one of the doctors who we believe knew about this whole identity swap was in that will given a lifetime appointment to that medical facility. So what we believe was supposed to happen was that when the stand-in died, the Mormon will would have been executed, and the doctor then would have been uh, given his lifetime appointment and have been able to funnel money back to Hughes, wherever he would have been at that time, back to Nick and Eva, essentially, is what we're saying here. Would he have been? I mean, is that a, would that have been a crime? I, I understand it's not necessarily a a, a a crime to fake your own death, but it is a crime if you if you attempt to profit from it. So that's where I was going with the 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 life insurance. But was any crime, to the best of your knowledge, committed by declaring Howard Hughes dead on April fifth, nineteen seventy six? Well, the the um, medical examiner. In, uh, in Houston was very concerned about going through the whole process. Uh, that was one of the things that troubled him, is he did not want to just put the body in the ground, and because that was his job to, to do something. So um, he did attempt to, to make some medical uh, findings on it, while at the same time uh, he had a lot of pressure from people on him to just get it over with and, and allow him to be buried. All right. Essentially, the other, the other part of this, Richard, is, you know, Howard Hughes wasn't one for really sticking to the letter of the law. If he <laughs> I'm had getting a plan that idea. Better for him. I'm getting that idea, for sure. All right, listen, we'll uh, take well, a time. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the income tax uh, issue. He just wouldn't pay his taxes, and uh, I think uh, at one point he had, well, he had dozens of lawsuits against him from... Uh, business deals where he basically had just changed the rules after the contracts had been signed. So, All right, uh, Douglas Wellman and Mark Music, stay with us. We'll come back on the other side. The Untold Secret Life of Howard Hughes here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. I put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation rolled up in it, and I have stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave this country and never come back, and I mean it. Passcodes personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Odie, hmm. man sweeping up over there. Does he work for me? I mean, have you seen him before? It was Nick. Something like that. I see the looking at I don't know. Fire. And make sure they use damp brooms from now on. Respiratory diseases are expensive, and I don't want a bunch of damn lawsuits. Okay, but can we at least proceed with the instrument panel we discussed? The tool shop's ready to no, go. No, I want to see the blueprints again. Look, Howard, the deadline is now completely unrealistic. At this rate, the war is going to be over by the time she's done. Now, I need you here to help consult on vital decisions, and you're off dealing with movies. you got a thousand goddamn workers waiting for you to make a decision here. Hey, Odie! Take it easy, all right? I understand you're under a lot of pressure, but it's going to do me no good if you crack up on me like that. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? 
Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Doug Wellman, Mark Music, stay with me as we continue to discuss the untold secret life of Howard Hughes. Their new book is Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. Uh, Just a programming note, next week on the program, uh, Jonathan Kay, National Post columnist, will be here. He has a a book out called Among the Truthers, A Journey Through America's Growing Conspiracist Underground. Uh, And of course, uh, no secret that he takes a a shot at some uh, people in the the conspiracy, uh, uh, I won't call it a movement, not just, you know, the 9-11 truthers or the Obama birthers, but just in general, uh, people who sort of, as he calls it, buys into these theories. So I think Jonathan Kay and I will have a few things uh, to chat about when we're definitely not going to see eye to eye on uh, too many of them, I'm guessing, but we'll have a nice uh, civil uh, conversation. That's Jonathan Kay uh, next week. Also, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, will be with us. And then in two weeks, interesting um, researcher by the name of Pepper Chomsky will be uh, with us uh, to give us an entirely new take on the murder of John Lennon. Some really mind-blowing information right there. All right, back to uh, Doug Wellman and Mark Music. Take me back to the the final days of Howard Hughes in 2001. How did it all come to an end? You want to take that one, Mark? Let let me talk about that. Uh, About 1993, they were living uh, west of Troy, Alabama, on 20 wooded acres. And if you wanted to hide, that would be the place that you would hide. Uh, They had about a 30-foot travel trailer. And that's what they lived in. And and Eva saw that Nick's uh, ear was starting to uh, have a sore on it. And it was the beginning of cancer is what it was. And it was, uh, uh, he wouldn't have anything done about it. He didn't want to go to the doctor. He didn't want, he didn't want, uh, um, she, she, she kept trying to press him on, you need to go to the doctor, go to the doctor, go to the doctor, and he wouldn't go. And that uh, expanded. Uh, the cancer expanded into the side of his head. And uh, that's what he finally died from, uh, was that cancer on his head in 2001. And uh, he, all the pushing that Eva did, he, he just wasn't going to do it. I, and she said, I think he was ready to go. I, I think he was ready to die. And so, um, but, but they, they were together. Uh, she took care of him until the end uh, in an apartment there in Dothan, Alabama. And he was treated actually by the VA in Montgomery, Alabama uh, for in 2000 and 2001 uh, for the cancer. So that's, that's pretty much how his life ended uh, was at that point. But, but he, he would hug Eva and say, Eva, I, I love you so much. I love you so much. And she was very proud and pleased to have taken care of him to the end. At what point did Eva uh, put it all together that Nick, in fact, was 
Howard Hughes? I mean, or did he tell her from the get-go? No, no. He he kept it a secret, but it, uh, he, he, he really didn't let out any information that he didn't have to. But uh, finally, when Eva began to become suspicious, I mean, they had the aides following him around, and he had money that he didn't seem to earn, and, you know, all of these things. Yeah, she started asking questions, and he, he finally uh, did it in a very unique way. She uh, noticed that he was kind of waiting for the mail every day, like he was very expectant over something. And what arrived was a, a issue of True Magazine, and that uh, magazine had a story in it on Howard Hughes, and so Nick opened up the magazine to a picture of Hughes and held it next to his face to Eva, and uh, she screamed, uh, "Nick, that's you!" And he just smiled and laughed. <laughs> and that was that was his way of saying, "Yep, you finally figured it out." And when he passed, is that when she really started to dig and 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 try to make the connections, or did she just accept well, she, it? She did ask him questions. After that, he would talk to her a little bit and ask her certain things. Uh, uh, why did uh, she shake hands with uh, President Roosevelt when she knew very well that he didn't like him? And he said, well, I, I had to do that because it was publicity. And uh, she'd ask him a few little bits and things about Hollywood. So he, he occasionally would tell her as much as he felt like telling. And then, um, and when he didn't feel like talking about it, he wouldn't talk. But she did do a little investigation afterwards. But uh, uh, really, she ran into Mark almost uh, actually literally before he died, because Mark had uh, rendered her some aid uh, prior to Nick's passing. So uh, basically what she learned about Howard Hughes after Nick died was basically what she learned from Mark. And and, and what, as I was working with her and listening to the story and, and trying to piece it together, like I said, it took me four years to really believe it, what I found is there's little bits and pieces in this, like... like um, that she was never aware of. And I said, uh, like, Eva left uh, in June of 72, and she moved to Arizona, and she intended on just leaving him because he was he had a craziness about him. Well, he shows up about six weeks later in June of 72 in Arizona, and she's a little peeved at him now. And, and she says, well, what have you been doing? And he said, I had some business to attend to. And as I researched this thing, I found out, lo and behold, I, I believe it was June 17, 1972, was Watergate. And Hunt and Liddy, who were arrested for Watergate, worked for a gentleman named Robert Bennett, who worked directly for Howard Hughes. And the 17-and-a-half-minute break in the tape, you know, that famous 17-and-a-half-minute break in the tape, yes, according yes. to H.R. Halterman, was the Howard Hughes connection to Watergate. And so when he said, I had some business to attend to, that was Watergate. And, and as, as, there was one time in, uh, in December 72 that Howard just grabbed her and hugged her and said, oh, you innocent child, you innocent child, I'm going to spoil you rotten. And he was just on top of the world. And I said, Eva, do you know what was going on there? And she said, I don't know. And I said, that was the time when he was getting ready to pay 
a penalty on TWA lawsuit of $152 million. And all of a sudden, it got totally reversed. And so he was ready to pay that $152 million, and all of a sudden it was reversed, and now he didn't have to pay it. And that was the time he was on top of the world saying, I'm going to spoil you rotten, I'm going to spoil you rotten, I love you so much. And it was these things that Eva knew nothing about. And these are the things that I, that I researched and brought it together and said, Eva, did you know uh, this happened? Another time she overheard him say, the move to Canada wasn't smart. And this was in 72, the move to Canada wasn't smart. She had no idea what that meant. And I said, Eva, I think what that means is that they moved a stand into Canada. They found out after they moved the stand into Canada that if he was there longer than six months, they owed Canadian taxes. And, of course, Howard was, was uh, trying hard not to pay any taxes. And so they had to move the stand-in out of Canada uh, prior to six months. And, and therefore, I said, Eva, if they kept the stand-in in Canada, they have to, pay, have to pay taxes. She said, okay, now that makes sense. But it, it was piecing these things together that uh, she really had no uh, no clue of uh, until we bring them all together, and then the then the the picture becomes very evident of what was going on. Uh, Doug and Mark, this story that you're telling, this account, is I mean, this totally rewrites an important chapter in in American history, uh, and yet. And I, 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 please don't take this the wrong way because, I mean, I think your research is incredible. The, the book is absolutely riveting. But it's – for something this important, I, you, I would have expected, a, you know, a, an impressive hardcover book, um, maybe uh, Random House would have gotten behind this. You guys really had to cobble together this book. On your own, I mean, with no support, I'm guessing. Uh, wh- why well, isn't? We wrote it in secret. That was number one. Right, but because but why... there, 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 uh, even as we speak, there is a certain amount of Hughes money that's still in play, and there are a lot of people who are very intent on maintaining the status quo. So we had to write the um, the book pretty much in secrecy. And actually, the first publisher that we offered the book to took it, so oh. we didn't we didn't go very any farther than that. Interesting. Okay. Um, any movie offers? No, not yet. But you know, the, the 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 key to this really was telling Eva's story. I know because Mark had the personal relationship with Eva, and then when he brought the story to me, and I met Eva, it, it really became. Well, there's a personal involvement, and it's, it it was kind of making sure Eva got her story told. Fortunately, she did um, uh, she did live until Mark was able to read her the final version of the of the manuscript. Uh, she didn't she didn't quite hang in there long enough to see the publication, but at least she did get to, um, to see the final book. Was she pleased? Yeah, she, yeah, she was very pleased. She we we I went back and read the book to her three times. And she wanted to make sure that everything in there was accurate. She didn't want a Hollywood in there at all. She wanted to make sure everything was accurate and true to to her. 
And that's the way we wrote it, was, was that way, and she was very happy with it. Did she think he would have been happy with it? I asked her that. I said, Eva, would Nick be pleased the book was, would be coming out? And she thought for a, just, a, just a few seconds and said, I know he would because he fooled the world. And she said he would be happy that the book is coming out. Well, I have to congratulate both of you because uh, it is a fascinating read, a fascinating account. Doug Wellman and Mark Music, the authors of Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. What's next for you two? Well, I'm working, I just finished a television pilot on the wars of the 20th century. So I've just uh, just written World War One. actually. I just finished that last week. So I'm now uh, in the process of getting ready to write uh, 25 more one-hour scripts. All right, well, I'll let you get to that because that's that's a monumental undertaking. And Mark? There's more coming out on this book. Uh, as Doug and I have worked on it, there's there's uh, there's more information that's coming out and coming up on it, and it just continues uh, on what what we're finding out and how that then um, is is additional information that uh, that supports the story. And so I I, I think uh, uh, there could be some more uh, chapters added onto the book at some point in time. But we're just continuing because there's still a lot of mystery about this that we don't that's, know about. That's for and sure. Well, congratulations we'll to find both out of more you. About it. Congratulations to both of you, and thanks for spending some time with me this evening. Thank you for having us. Richard, thank you very much. Mark Music, Doug Wellman. When we come back, our media scientist friend Nelson Thal with some interesting stories you won't want to miss. Back with more in a moment. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Slips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Well, just two days ago, there was a young female parliamentary page who lost her job following a rather... A gutsy uh, protest, some might say, um, of the uh, the new Harper government. And during the speech from the throne, which of course is read by the Queen's representative in Canada, the Governor Governor General, uh, this young woman, this page, held up a sign carrying the message "Stop Harper." And uh, she's been identified as a um, as a playwright uh, by the name of Bridget de Pape. Now, I saw that story and I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, but our media scientist friend, Nelson Thal, saw that story and he has quite a different take. Uh, and he's here to share that with us. Hello, Nelson. How are you? Good, Richard. Good. It's nice being here. We're skinny on time, so why don't we go into it? Yes, please. Bridget on May 2nd, 2011... Britain's Daily Express newspaper reported the following headline. 
EU attempts to merge France and the UK. Senior Tories in the UK government <clears throat> condemned plans to merge southern England and France into a territory called Arc Manche, complete with its own flag. Now, many at high levels in England and Britain uh, are angered <clears throat> after a European Union plot to carve up Britain by setting up a cross-channel region was exposed. So I think that's important to realize there's a lot of commotion going on with, in Britain over its survival. And so when you look at the fact that somebody stands up in the parliament and threatens the prime minister, I think it's important we understand the subplot behind a lot of what's going on. Well, how did you arrive at that being the subplot? I mean, she holds up a sign, first of all, saying stop Harper, and she's calling for an Arab Spring in Canada. How, I mean, is that being perceived as a threat to him? Um, it certainly is uh, a threat to the prime minister, I think. And it makes sense because um, in the grand chessboard game, Richard, we know that um, they play the game with as a chessboard game. Checkmate, your pawn, my bishop, your rook, etc., your king, your queen. And we've seen many assassinations of chessboard pieces in our era, the princess, namely the princess Diana. So um, when you see that there's a lot of battling going on in Europe, you know that you know somebody over here could sort of be the fall guy and um, could be attacked. You mentioned I mean, that she they, was connected they tried with... to assassinate Kennedy. Why wouldn't they try and assassinate the prime minister? And is well, this a what... warning to our prime minister? Because um, those are questions which the, uh, the, the I'm sure the uh, the federal forces ought to be asking tonight, right? Well, well, two questions, Nelson. Number one, um, you mentioned to me earlier that she's somehow a product of the Project Mannequin. Explain that. Well, that's right. I mean, Richard, uh, we have talked about many times the the boys from Brazil, the Hollywood film, Dick talked about it. And you're, we're, we've talk, our audiences knows that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, Kennedy and McLuhan, and the arts and sciences are in the pockets of the secret societies. And we live in an age of gigantic pictorial illusionism and journalistic exaggeration of concealment, where, as McLuhan said, the truth in conversation has disappeared everywhere. What's Project Mannequin? So Project Mannequin is a continuation of um, of the um, uh, the boys from Brazil, the uh, Himmler Mengele cloning project, which many different films have shown. And it's a mind control person, a person who's been completely mind controlled, and and uh, and programmed to hold up a sign and do this uh, by. Project Mannequin, Tavistock, other parts of the psychological warfare division of the military. And why would they be targeting Harper I mean, for how'd a proposed you get in there with a sign? Come on. Mm -hmm. They look the other way. It's another they they had to look the other way. She you can't get you can't get into the you can't get in with a sign unless they let her in. How would why would Harper be connected with the merger proposed merger of Southern England with France? I don't think he's connected to it. He's a chessboard piece on the game. He may be completely not connected to it, but he is he is connected to the throne of England, and there's a big battle going on in England, as reported in the British press. The people are really up in arms and angry. 
over okay. the fact that the country's going to be carved up. So they're under attack. And uh, if Britain's under attack, and this is a British Commonwealth country, then maybe we'll come under attack too by those forces. So that's something to think about, because certainly there's a war going on over there. And we know, remember, I mean, Nigel, Nigel Farage, the British, <laughs> a member of the, of the European Parliament, um, his plane was, he was nearly on Skolnick's list of airplane sabotage. His plane was sabotaged and he crashed, but he survived. And he had uh, been in the parliament, in the European Parliament, and said a lot of really um, homogeneous things about von Rumpy, the president. Well, Nelson, uh, listen, I thank so, you. So, you know, Ooh. it's all something to watch for and, uh, and keep, you know, is to see what, what uh, and remember what's, what uh, dangers may lie ahead. I leave it to a media scientist such as yourself to, to connect these dots because uh, uh, never in a million years would I, have, uh, would I have connected the two. But thank you for uh, joining us as always. And we can listen to you on Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel Thursday nights. Right. Thursday nights, www.bloomandsteel.com. And um, Thursday nights, last, month, last Thursday of the month, only the last Thursday of the month. Bloomandsteel.com. Thanks, yeah. Nelson. Talk soon. Thanks. All right, my thanks to Griffin March, and uh, we'll be back next week in conversation with Jonathan Kay, Among the Truthers. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.